This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and once again I'm joined by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. Hello. So Tom, what is on the agenda for this week's podcast? Thanks very much, Dan. This week we'll be looking at the increase in the state pension age and what it means for people's retirements. We'll also be looking at Prime Minister Boris Johnson's latest plans to put rocket boosters under the housing market. Feels like there's been quite a few of those in the last few years. Um, And we've got a special interview with former game group boss Ian Shepard on the role data plays in modern companies. But first, Dan, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, it's been a dramatic week in the markets. <laughs> it's a dramatic week every week in the markets, of course, with headlines primarily focused on US President Donald Trump catching COVID uh, and the White House itself hosting what appears to have been a super spreader event. Obviously, Donald Trump has now uh, removed himself from hospital and he's back in the White House. But what what are the markets making of all this? And is there any anything that investors can take from from events on the other side of the pond it's, at the moment? Yeah, it's total madness, isn't it? So <laughs> yes. It's, it's, I mean, if you uh, imagine 10 years' time, you look back on, uh, on uh, all these events, you know, you'll sort of sit there with utter bewilderment yeah. <laughs> uh, things. So, I mean, the, the stock market was uh, a bit... A bit upset when Trump um, sort of said he got coronavirus, mm. and I think it's it was not because they were um, sort of feeling sorry for him. It's more the case of does that mean that Joe Biden has a stronger position mm. to to be elected as um, the next president? And you know, Biden is threatening higher taxes, which is not good for um, companies or, or you know certain individuals. Yeah, but you know, Trump getting back into the hot seat again seems to stabilize things. Um, and then we had the sort of the federal chair, Jerome Powell, sort of saying, I think it's time for some more stimulus. Mm. So he was sort of saying that you know, the government support, which has included um, sort of direct payments to households, financial support for small businesses, that so far has pre- prevented a recessionary downward spiral. Mm. Um, but really he's sort of saying you need more because um, if you don't have more, you're just going to have you know, some bigger, bigger problems. So Trump came out and said, well, I'm sorry, stimulus talks are going to be on hold until after the election. Um, and he kind of predicted he would win next month's election and just pass a bill afterwards. So, mm. I mean, this this initially triggered a bit of a, a wobble again in the stock market. So um, the idea that stimulus is not going to be uh, front and centre, uh, we might have to wait you know, a month for yeah. for something that you know, stock market's hated that. Um, but but then he, of course, in, in classic Trump fashion, came out and sort of said, "Oh, you know, how about a twelve hundred dollar check for all U.S. households?" It's yeah, like, <laughs> you know, which, which seems like um, you know, making himself look amazing to uh, to the Americans and obviously yeah. get votes on his side for the for the election. To, yeah, a twelve hundred dollar you know, bump. Yeah, so basically, he wants election. you know, he wants some you know, do we, does the government want to be spending loads support on you know various infrastructure mm. stuff, uh, long term sort of expenditure, or would you like a load of cash now? Yeah. Of course, he's gone for the you know that option. So and of course then. Markets quite like that, <laughs> so it's it, yeah, it's just you know it's just up and down, isn't it? It's, it's it, and and, and this is going to continue, isn't it? This is classic 
tactics ahead mm. of an election that you you know that, that there's going to be either side will find something new just yeah. throw in um they'll be throwing fists and, and, and pulling tricks out of their sleeves and and of course the markets are going to be volatile we, we don't really know quite what's going on and mm. um you know I, I guess the other thing which is probably worth addressing is you know will Trump have a relapse, you know, who's to say his, his, his sort of health is on the mend? Well, you know, yeah. So he's, he's left hospital, but as we talk now, he still has COVID-19 symptoms as far as we're aware. And he, like you say, it's possible that even though he's probably got the best medical staff in the world, that things might not work out as perfectly as he may have said in his videos. So huge uncertainty lying around the president at the moment. Yeah, so, well, you know, if he gets... If he doesn't feel too very, you know, doesn't feel well, and um, you know, markets take this to be a negative sign. It, you, know, you just prepare for more volatility. But I guess if you're, you know, if you've been investing in in the U.S. stock market mm. for a while, particularly more longer than a year, you'll be sitting on, you know, potentially could be sitting on some attractive gains, certainly relative to other parts of the world. Um, you know, it's just going to be perhaps harder for those markets to eke up. But you know, let's let's see what happens. So we'll we'll definitely do um, as a more detailed podcast when mm. we know um, perhaps just before the election, you sort of see where the, the what's happening in yeah. in the state of affairs, yeah. and, and what then the, what the different victories might mean. For, yeah, and then we'll people. yeah absolutely. we'll look at it. We'll look at it afterwards as well. well actually, if you if you look at the market. Uh, at the moment, some of these sort of big tech stocks, which have have been key contributors to the U.S. stock market, doing mm. very well. Um, some of them sort of seem to be sort of finding it hard to recover from falls that happened early September. Um, and then the other thing that was caught my eye was the banks have been picking up in the last week or so. So this is you know, high risk sector, the risk of increasing bad debts, um, low interest rates, environments terrible for banks. Um, but actually, you know, they're, they're seen as value calls. So, um, I'll, you know, if, if the high growth tech stocks mm. aren't racing ahead and value stuff like banks are, you know, seem to be attracting attention again, it just suggests a rotation in the market. But these things always, the big question is how long does the rotation last? Mm. Um, we've seen it loads of times before. They quickly go back to the old favourite of um, high growth again. So, um, yeah, you know, one to one to definitely keep an eye on. But um, it's certainly there seems to be some more things bubbling under the surface there, which suggests that value could be coming back into play again. Yeah. So. For those who aren't familiar, is it is it worth touching on what you mean by by value value yeah, stocks I mean, essentially, and rotation? So people have been buying high growth stocks. Um, for a while. So we've been in a low interest rate environment. So any company that could um, display decent positive earnings mm. growth in this period, investors have been happy to pay almost any price to own them. Because um, with earnings growth, hopefully should come share price growth. Yeah. Um, but value stocks are where you know they're cheap on various valuation metrics, but it might be because they're um, not experiencing any growth, or something has to be changed to to sort of perhaps fix some problems. So um, the idea is that they may be trading below what their true worth is really happening, and, and at some point the markets um, will will re-rate to what a, a normal valuation mm. would be. So mean reversion is um, something we've seen historically happening. So if, you, if you're if you a value investor, you buy a, a cheap stock with the idea, hopefully, or re-rate to something like a fair value, then you yeah. sell it. 
growth investing or you know or quality growth is what other people are calling it is where you 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 don't pay as much attention to valuation um you're chasing this sort of earnings growth so um that, that that's a sort of a, a very simple way of explaining yeah, it to yeah. those who don't know so some of the other stuff that's happened on the markets in the last week is um travel stocks been picking up so the airlines in particular um so there's there was an article in the guardian talking about the potential for um, changes to the quarantine period for for when people um, traveling from overseas into the UK. So at the moment, it's a 14-day quarantine period, but um, a sort of speculation that they might shift it to be where you have um, a single test for travelers after a period of isolation that's shorter than this two-week period, mm. or, or you could look at um, a two-test approach. So um, when you are coming from overseas, you'd be tested um, prior to departure in in that foreign country, and then several days again after you arrive back in the UK. So that the, all this sort of suggests mm. um, less um, strict restrictions for people who are traveling, and therefore, you know, that makes the travel sector perhaps not look as bad as it mm. was. I mean, people have been sort of selling airline stocks because they're worried the industry is going through a terrible periods and no yeah, one wants to travel. Course. And I think if you talk to people on the street, one of the key things is saying like, well, I, f- I feel all right about going on a plane. I'm happy to wear a mask. But the problem is when I get back from my holiday, mm. um, I'm in a type of a job where I can't work from home. I need yeah. to go out. So I can't afford to go and take 14 days off work. So that's, you know, if, if, if it becomes a lot less, um, these restrictions, therefore, potentially you could see, you know, theoretically, you could see uh, an, an increase in demand for, for travel. But, you know, this is just how the, how the stock market is viewing yeah, it. Yeah, I suspect it is a significant, significant thing as well. I've spoken to a few people who've had to quarantine and it's a serious imposition on your on your liberties over that over that period of time and obviously it's not it's not from every country i've just flown to and to and from italy and there were no quarantine measures in place but you could see that given there are significant quarantine measures in place from a number of countries that are popular among travelers both the work point that you make but also the the social point that you, the, uh, as, as well that people might at the moment think it's simply not worth traveling and going on holiday to that country because you've then got to spend two weeks essentially cooped up in your house, particularly if you live in a somewhere like London, and perhaps you've got a small flat and not not much space to roam around. Yeah. So the other thing I was caught my eye was Cineworld. I'm sure mm. this has been across yes. all the papers. So, um, deciding to temporarily close their US and UK uh, cinemas again. We don't know for how long, but this is off the back of. Um, the new James Bond film being yes. postponed. Gutted. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, uh, yeah, we all want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that you know the, the film studio is just sort of nervous about there won't be as much demand mm. for it in the in the cinema as perhaps they could get. And you know they spent so much money making these films, and they and they uh, same again on the marketing and stuff. So it's it, they don't want to take that risk. So Cineworld shares have. Um, you know, plummeted hard, but yeah. there's more to it than that. So the a key reason why Sydney World shares have fallen so much is it's got so much debt. So it's going to have another period of um, vastly reduced revenue because um, it does still have operations in Eastern Europe as well. Mm. Um, so vastly reduced revenue, uh, but it still have these debt repayments to service. So 
there's now a speculation it's going to need more money. One mm. analyst was suggesting it needs um, 300 million euros, potentially increased liquidity. So this could come from um, some more more debt, um, possibly an equity raise, you know, issuing new shares. But you know, at the current price, I'm not sure that they would rush to do that. Um, but you know, since this announcement's come out, we've had. Um, you know, yet more films push back. And of course, this is a key reason. If you're going to the cinema, the, whole, the, the key reason to go there is because you want to have see one of these great films mm. out. But so if there's no big name films being shown, it really, you know, on a mass appeal basis, want to rush to go and see it. Yeah. I mean, I had a look to see what was on my local cinema this weekend. You know, you can go and see one of the old Harry Potter films. Mm. Um and in a couple of weeks' time, there's a showing of Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, yeah. You might, a curiosity sake, but think, okay, maybe I want to see one of these old films. Yeah, for nostalgia. I was going to say, I think quite, I think quite a lot of independent cinemas do that as well. Yeah. Though they have like old classics like Back to the Future or whatever might be on, which will work for an independent cinema. But when you're looking at something that's trying to be across the country and make profits, that's not gonna not gonna work quite so well, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, June was one of the big films to be coming out this year. That's been pushed back a year, and then. New Batman films being pushed back uh, mm. into 2022 now, and it's like so you can sense this nervousness. Odin have come out and said they're probably going to open just at weekends for some of their cinemas. Mm. Views not sure. So I mean, the big question is, how, you know, Cineworld does it need more money? Um, where's it going to come from? How long will its cinemas stay shut for? Um, and you know, and it was so aggressive with its growth. Um, it, it bought this big business in the US called Regal. Then it tried to do another deal. It's just, and it was sort of, you know, just completely bloated with debt. And now it's paying the price. So it's, it's um, you know, it's a lesson to investors mm. to always look at the, the amount of debt that a company has. Yeah. So we've talked about the state pension on this podcast before. And this week, there was a couple of important changes which could affect people's retirement plans. So Tom, Talk us through exactly what's happened. Yep, so Tuesday the 6th of October was when the state pension age officially hit 66 for everyone. So these are reforms that have been in train since 2010. The actual proposals first came out in 1995, so a long, wow. uh, a long period where this has been proposed and debated. Some amendments have been made, but since 2018, the state pension age for men and women has been rising from 65 to 66. And as we've talked about on the podcast before the main reason that that's happening is because people are living a lot longer so a couple of uh, a couple of interesting stats i thought i'd bring out just to just to show how it longevity has been increasing in the uk so between 1950 and 2020 the number of over 65s has roughly doubled in the uk so that's um uh, mainly as a result of baby boomers who've reached retirement um and clearly that place is huge pressure on the state and on the exchequer as well increased the cost of supporting those pensioners and the cost of the state pension has been ballooning as a result of that as well um, a really interesting one here actually and we can maybe maybe play a guessing game okay. um, so the number of number of centenarians in the uk so people who've, who've celebrated their hundredth birthday so king george v in 1917 issued the first letters to people who'd reached their hundredth birthday so how many do you think were sent out in the first year, so in 1917. Um, I don't know, five, 500. So it was 24. 24? Roll forward to 2016. Okay, so uh, I don't know, 5,000. Very close, 6,000. Oh, okay. And then in 2050, they expect 56,000 
letters to be sent out. So that's just an indication of how life expectancy has changed over that period of time. And over that period of time, the state pension age for men and women had stayed the same until now. So people are going to have to wait a little bit longer to get their state pension. Um, A reminder that the state pension pays uh, for future retirees, so people who retired after 2016, pays um, about £175.20 a week, so around £9,000 um, a year, that's based on your national insurance records. That's the most that you can um, you can get. And if you want to have any more money than that, then you need to look to build your own retirement pot um, along alongside that. Um, the second thing that we had sort of some confirmation on, but not really from uh, from Rishi. So Rishi Sunak was doing the rounds um, on various radio stations as part of the Conservative Party conference. And he was asked about the state pension triple lock. So this is the promise that the state pension will increase in line with the highest of average earnings, inflation or 2.5%. Now, there's been a lot of speculation around the state pension triple lock and whether or not they'll be able to retain that promise. And that's because we're going through this period this year where clearly average earnings are going to be depressed. And one of the fears was is that next year average earnings will go up hugely. And as a result, that'll be a big cash cost to the Treasury, potentially billions of pounds, which then they'd have to pay in 2022. Now, um, there were headlines saying Rishi Sunak had said that the triple lock will remain in place, suggesting that will remain in place throughout the course of this parliament. He hadn't qu- he didn't quite say that. It was a very politician yeah. answer to the question of whether the state pension triple lock will stay in place. So he said, we care very much about pensioners, which isn't a very controversial thing, I don't think, for a politician to say. And that is our policy. So clearly, <laughs> some people have jumped on that yeah. and said the triple lock is staying in place. Yeah. Um, as a slightly weathered old former hack, I looked at that and thought, he's not really committed to anything there. Yeah. So one to, one to keep an eye on. I suspect um, if I were a gambling man, I would say that given that the budget has been delayed until next year, they're probably not going to have time to make any changes to the triple lock that will apply in uh, April 2021. So we'll probably retain it for this year. This year, the cash cost of the Treasury is likely to be lower as well because average earnings uh, are low and inflation is low. So the most they're likely to have to increase the state pension pie is 2.5%. So I think the one to look out for will be the year after in yeah. relation to the state pension triple lock. Um, but as always, whenever I talk about the state pension, um, I think the broad message for people to to takeaway is that um, the, the state is only pulling back from providing for people's retirement. So state pension age has reached 66. Uh, it's due to increase to 67 by 2028. It's due to increase to 68 by 2039. That's likely to rise in, in line with rising life expectancy. Oh, if, so if people continue to live longer, and of course, it'll be interesting to see what happens to life expectancy as a result of coronavirus, that's likely to have an impact. But the broad trends are pretty clear. So if life expectancy continues to go up, then it's likely that certainly younger people, anyone in their 30s and 40s, probably needs to be preparing to not receive their state pension until perhaps their 70th birthday oh, and planning yeah. around that. So that's you and me, unfortunately, Dan, that's the that's the future that we're looking at. So you need to you need to take responsibility for yourself. Auto, automatic enrolment helps. So the fact that you get a match match contribution for your employer, but for most people, it won't deliver the retirement that they want. And so you've got to take responsibility and start saving some money if you can afford to. I know it's very difficult for a lot of people at yeah. the moment. So, Dan, one of the headlines that caught my eye this week centred on government plans to apparently bring back 95% mortgages. Takes me back. (laughs) Um, So what exactly is happening and is this 
going to be good news for borrowers? Well, we're short on absolute detail here, but we got never. Yeah. We're, Boris Johnson's short on detail. <laughs> I cannot believe it. So we got a, we got a, we got a big picture idea of what yeah. he wants. So he he wants to essentially encourage more banks to offer um, you know, nine to five percent mortgages. So essentially, people who who can perhaps only afford up to sort of five percent of the value of the property they want to buy as a deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the moment, the banks are a bit wary about lending to people, particularly to new customers. Mm. So they're worried about bad debts. And also, they're spending a lot of their time looking after existing customers. So there's, there's masses of people who are calling them all the time about mortgage holidays and stuff. Mm. So it's it seems an odd time to be pushing for banks to be, um, you know, Relax with their lending. But mm. I think what, so this is where it's got a bit of a twist. Um, the implications, according to reports, is that the, the government could offer some sort of guarantee for yeah, buyers. I was, was going to say, how are they going to do this then? Because they're, say, yeah. they're, they're saying they want 95% mortgages. Clearly, post financial crisis, the push has been in the other direction. So banks have been encouraged by regulators and others to be a lot more careful in their lending. So this is. Boris Johnson saying something, I guess, is one thing, but how how is has he said how he's going to get banks to do this, or is it kind of all speculation yeah. at this stage? Well, I mean, or, or, we know that the, so he wants to shift the risk from the banks and the mm. borrowers to the taxpayer, which which seems a bit strange. Um, uh, but we don't know how he's going to do it, really, mm. apart from potential this sort of room of some sort of guarantee. So, you know, I would love to know what the banks are saying of this. I, yeah. you know, I had a quick look. There, there was an article in the FT which quotes um, a chap who, who sort of runs the part of the section of um, the banking trade body, UK Finance. Um, you know, th- there was a sort of stock answer saying the industry was looking forward to working with the government on its proposals. But <laughs> he was cautioning that firms have a duty to lend responsibly and to consider the affordability of the mortgage in long term. And I think that's that's the key here. So, I mean, I, you know, Tom and I were talking um, earlier today about um, how he had an amazing day yesterday when he's, <laughs> he's trying to, he's, yeah, you're, you're, you were applying for a mortgage and you said it was a, pl- a very quick, pleasant call with, it was the, a, yeah, with a the lender. Jo- so. a, jo- a joy, yeah, to be, to be fair, the, the lender was fine, but it is a long process. So it's the first time I've um, I've been involved in a, in a in the the actual interview stage. So we've done the pre-application where you chat to a guy for a little while. Hmm. And then you get the, uh, we had the email through with confirming our appointment. So we've got a place that we want to buy. Um, And it said in the email that it was uh, set to set two and a half hours aside. (laughs) Now, I don't speak to my closest friends for two and a half (laughs) hours. It's far too long. This podcast is about as long as I can speak to someone before I just run out of stuff to say. (laughs) So I thought, how am I going to speak to a company who shall not be named, mortgage advisor for two and a half hours? But um, clearly they've got, you know, checks to do and things like that. It was relatively simple, just incredibly dull. Although we have, we have found that um, we're, it's, I think the process is going to take quite a long time. I, guess, I suspect lots of people are looking to move at the moment, given um, given the stamp duty changes and things like that. So I think we're, we're looking at um, 12, potentially 12 weeks until we can, uh, until we, until we get confirmation. Wow. I mean, that's, that, that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. Show, you know, the, the bank's extremely busy. At the yes. Moment, so it's, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's. So I think the, yeah, the return of ninety five percent mortgages might make them even even busier. I'm not sure if they've got <laughs> yeah. the capacity, frankly. Yeah. But. So uh, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, of you know, as this news came out originally through an article in the Telegraph, and then mm. it was sort of um, mentioned at the the Conservative Party um, talk that we had this mm. week. So 
the house shares in the house builders got all uh, you know, excited about mm. this. The investors were bidding them up, so yeah. you know, good five percent gains in some of these stocks. So, you know, the, this sector's already got a tailwind um, thanks to stamp duty mm. um, temporary relief that runs to next March. So, that, I mean, that's created a real activity in the property market. Um, I don't know about where you live, Tom, but you know, I just have to walk around where I live and there's masses of, mm. um, not, you know, it's sold signs, you know, yeah, it, it, yeah. originally I thought, okay, loads of people, uh, perhaps after lockdown, trying their luck to sell stuff, but mm. things are selling. Yeah. Um, yeah. things are really shifting. So, um, I can imagine that, you know, these house builders, first time buyers, perhaps, you know, the, these people who perhaps can only get 5% mm. deposit are a key customer base. Yeah. So you can understand why the um, investors have been sort of looking to this um, sector for opportunities. But yeah, I'm sure there'll be some sting in the tail of the detail, but you know, it's, it, let's see what, what they say, but uh, it's, it was quite a, a surprise to mm. me as someone who follows the market that, that we would take this twist at the moment. And, but, you know, the government is seemingly obsessed with um, housing, uh, you know, getting people on the property mm. ladder. Um, I guess like a nation, we love to talk about properties. But... Say, and, and building generally. And obviously Boris Johnson's a big fan of building things yeah. full stop. I'm not sure how far away we are from hearing about the bridge from Scotland to Northern Ireland again. We must be only a few <laughs> weeks, surely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So companies regularly talk about the power of data, but are they able to use it to drive profits? Dan caught up with Ian Shepard, who's an expert on this topic. Ian used to be the boss of Game Group and Chief Operating Officer at Odeon, so he knows a thing or two about running consumer-facing business in highly competitive markets. The two of them talk about the struggles that companies have with data and also the ones which really get it right. You'll hear some stories about Ocado and pets at home in the discussion. So sit back and enjoy the interview. So Ian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcasts. Um, lots of companies are talking about embracing data, uh, but I wonder whether they really know how to use it. So you explore this sort of concept in your new book, which is called The Average is always wrong. Um, looking at how data analytics can fuel profits for companies. So before we sort of talk about which companies might be good or bad at using data, I think it's probably worth explaining to listeners what you mean by the phrase, the average is always wrong. Well, well, Dan, firstly, thank you very much for, for, for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. And, uh, and yes, you're right. It's a quite a controversial um, title, the average is always wrong. But where it comes from is is my view that when you in a business presentation you hear an average it might be the you know the number of times our customers visit us each year or the number of weeks of stock that we hold in our business it's almost always either the wrong answer to your question or, or the answer to the wrong question um, because of just how much it hides the value of um, data is in the detail. Uh, you might be happy with a you know two weeks stock holding across your business, but if the reality is that that's actually ten days in most of your stores and six weeks in a small number of stores, you're probably going to want to do something about that. You're going to want to investigate it and and take action, and you miss that completely um, by just skating over summary numbers. So real, my 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 thesis is that that real data analysis is not about averages. It's about how individual data points vary from the average. Um, it's the world of you know scatter charts and statistical significance, and increasingly it's the world of machine learning and AI. Uh, many of the data analytic analytics techniques that get 
really sophisticated sounding technical names are actually just ways of understanding the real patterns and complexity in large data sets. Okay, so what, uh, why do you think companies fail to properly use data? Do you, I wondered if it was just down to a lack of expertise, not knowing what to do with all this information. Well, that, that's a great question. And I think, I think a whole mix of issues come into play. Um, for many, I spend a lot of my time in the retail and hospitality sectors. And for many businesses in those sectors, they simply don't easily have access to the data that they need. So if you take a, the retail sector, for example, if I run a pure play e-commerce retailer, you have to tell me who you are in order to buy something from me. I'm going to need an email address and quite probably an actual address in order to deliver the product. So I end up with a terrific kind of granular data set about which customers have bought which things from me. But by comparison, the traditional brick and mortar retailer has many transactions that are for cash. They're essentially anonymous. And so it's harder for them to build that granular understanding of their customers without doing something very active to change the situation. Like, and that's the business case for launching a loyalty card, for example, in order to connect your, your customers to the products that they buy from you. So in some cases, it's about availability. But, but, but yes, I think another reason that companies fail to maximize the value from the data that they have is expertise and, and more generally, actually, culture. So, so I've seen, and, and I talk in the book a little bit about companies that feel like they've done all the right things to become data-centric. They've launched the loyalty scheme, they've hired some data scientists, they've implemented some desktop technologies that are about data analytics and understanding, and yet they still feel like they're not, they're not really getting any return on all of that investment. And the underlying reason for that often ends up being that the senior team in the business are just frankly not that comfortable with all of the data analytics talk. And so they tend to keep it as a almost what I'd characterize as an interesting hobby. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion at the management table, an occasional presentation from somebody with lots of charts and numbers in it, but it doesn't really change anything in what the management team will often think of as the real business, the, the kind of the core business, the thing we actually do every day. Uh, and that's why in setting out to write The Average is Always Wrong, a book about data in business, I've ended up, there's, there's probably as much in the book about culture and attitudes and sort of cultural transformation as there is about data analytics itself, because that is very often the challenge that I think businesses face into. So, I mean, I know that when just pre-pandemic, I went to Halfords and they started asking for my email address. So I guess that's one way um, that a company can try and match an in-store purchase to, to try and work out who I am as a customer. But I don't see any evidence that they're using this information to send me on very tailored sort of communications uh, or marketing offers. I seem to be just a, in a generic customer segment. So uh, is this a problem that companies are having? They're not really drilling down and um, doing personalized communication. It's just still too broad. Well, I think, I think you've... Um... It, it, it's a really interesting experience that you've had there, and I think the the the, the fact you use the word segment, I think, is 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 a is a very interesting one, and it's something that I um, feel quite strongly about, and have written wrote, wrote, wrote quite a lot about in the in the book. So, I mean, in terms of the the end to end process, you've you've put your finger, I think, on the on the steps that a retailer needs to take. So you 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 have to 
obviously be able to, particularly for customer analytics, you have to be able to connect the customers that you have with the purchases that they make. And so you're right that um, asking for an email address at the till is a, is a very good and actually very cost-effective alternative to using some more expensive or more, more technologically advanced kind of loyalty card solution to achieve the same thing. And that, if it works, creates the flow of data into the business. And what then happens, of course, the question then is what do you do with that data and what results do you produce from it? And it's I can't speak for what Halfords in particular have done with their data, but, but certainly for many consumer businesses, one of the first things that they do when they have a stream of customer data to analyze is divide those the customer base up into segments of segmentation, probably the most common data analytic technique that consumer businesses use. And for a very good reason, because it's dead easy. Um, and it's, it's also very easy to understand. It's an easy thing to explain to the business at large. This is what we've done. We've divided customers into those who, you know, a younger, more tech savvy customer or, a, you know, an older customer that needs a slightly different sort of products and services from us. And, and that that's something that, you know, many um, people who've who've you know been in a consumer business will have experienced, and sometimes it's really valuable. Um, particularly, I think if it moves the business from treating every customer as if they were the same to at least understanding that there are different need states out there. Um, but it's also um, increasingly, I think, a little bit dated. Um, segmentation, so dividing customers into groups that look a bit like each other, really dates from when customer communications could only really be done that way. So I'm, I'm old. So I grew up in the, in the days of direct mail, splitting a mail shot into five or six segments was, was doable, but it was only just about doable. So, so, so actually it was a natural thing to divide the customer base in the same way. These days, however, you know, sending emails and, and, and other customer communications or, or indeed customizing a web experience can be done in a much more sophisticated way, um, treating effectively every customer differently. And people use the phrase segments of one to, to capture this idea of going to customers with messages which are very bespoke and very tailored to, to them. Um, and that is, that's a natural thing to do when you have data in, in, in today's kind of in the world of technology that we have today. And, you know, it, it really represents kind of best practice, I suppose. And so if you do come across a business that, you know, has instead simply divided the customer base into a small number of segments. There's a danger that can begin to feel a little bit old-fashioned and, and, and suboptimal. Yeah. Is it, I mean, these days, do you reckon it's, is it easy to predict what a customer will buy? I guess lots of people might assume that we've got sophisticated AI systems and, um, you know, the touch of a button, we know just by simple um, use of technology what someone might do next, or is it is impossible to say that? I th I think it's um, it's certainly a lot easier than it was ten or fifteen years ago. I think the the in some senses the point of artificial intelligence, machine learning. You know, you can insert the buzzword of your of your choice into this, but the the purpose of these kind of more sophisticated data analytic techniques in a business is very often to do things exactly like what you're talking about. And, and the process is um, analytically, I think, relatively straightforward to understand. You know, you take a historical sample of customers, some of whom bought the product or responded to the marketing message and others who didn't. Um, and you put that information alongside all the other information that you have about those customers. 
And what you're attempting to do is build the predictive model that uses the other information to correctly sort the customers into those who bought and those who didn't. And once, you, you, once you've built that model, you then apply it to new customers or in a new situation to try and tell you what's going to happen. Um, and that, that is, those are exactly the kind of exercises that the data-centric business uses all the time. I, this phrase, I, I use the phrase in the book, data-centric business, to try and capture the idea of a business that's really got it, that's really kind of making the best use of data and analytics. And those businesses will do that, not, not just to predict sales, but to forecast core volumes into call centers, to predict engineer call-outs, to optimize warehousing and logistics, to do all sorts of things. And so at some level, yes, you know there are techniques and technologies that you can now relatively straightforwardly apply. None of these are easy, but relatively straightforwardly apply to the data sets in your business. But, but I think what's important for people running businesses to kind of continually reflect on, though, is to understand that none of those models is infallible. Um, you know, I, I, I described the model the way I did deliberately to make clear that what it's essentially doing is looking for patterns in historical data. Uh, and if the world changes in some way, you know, new products come out, your competitors change their strategy, regulations change, there's some structural change in consumer behavior, then those models can fall apart very easily. So, so what I'm trying to do when I talk to businesses and in, in writing the book about, about data is to make business leaders sort of more informed users and buyers of those kinds of analytical techniques, but also make sure that, you know, we understand their limitations and that we don't make the mistake of thinking there's some kind of perfect black box. Um, you know, there's still room for instinct and judgment and experience in business as well as data analytics. Yeah. I mean, can you give me some examples of companies that get it when it comes to using data? Yeah, well, it, it's often... Um, for I think the reasons that have become clear as we've had this conversation, it's often those businesses which either which exist entirely online or 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 or, or which in some cases were founded by teams with loads of kind of data analytics experience from other sectors that 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 get it most naturally. So I, I use the example um, in the book of a business like Ocado um, that um, you know they've done a huge amount of data analytics. Um, work in every corner of their business. And, and when I say every corner of their business, sometimes in, in quite surprising ways. So I, I tell the story in the book of them building a model which um, effectively read incoming customer service emails and allocated them a priority so that the high priority urgent emails were dealt with more quickly and, and, and you know, more appropriately than, than they might otherwise have been. And that idea which is well we have this large volume of emails and we've got data about those emails the language they use the time of day they arrive the the length of them all sorts of other bits of metadata about those emails i wonder if we could use that to allocate priorities or to identify urgent issues or problems that need kind of rapid resolution that's exactly the kind of approach that a data-centric business would, would take um, so not just on you know, the whizzy kind of front-end sales and marketing stuff, but on some quite operational things too. Um, but I think alongside the, the, the pure play technology businesses, there are also lots of more established consumer businesses um, that do lots of data analytics and, and indeed B2B businesses that do lots of data analytics. Uh, and in fact, many of the kind of analytical techniques that 
we've been talking about here that I talk about in the book and that people are, you know, seeing kind of referenced around them, the sort of the machine learning models and the AI models. A lot of them were first developed by telcos, by pay TV companies and other businesses that essentially subscription-based businesses because they had lots of customer data um, and therefore the opportunity to build really interesting kind of models. So things that I'm seeing people talk about in, in, consumer sectors in retail and hospitality now as cutting edge machine learning were things that that utilities and pay tv companies were probably playing with 15 or 20 years ago so that there's definitely a kind of uh, uh, there are a variation across different sectors about which companies get it and which don't yeah i mean it's, it's, in terms of um the ones that don't is, are these traditional businesses that principally are you know they, perhaps they've had a high street presence and um or or you know, if it's it might be in a retail park and yes, they might have online operations, but they're still, um, still got very traditional focus about how they do business. Is it, is that what you find or, or is it not? The case? I, 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 th- I think that's, I think that's a valid, um, I think that's a valid observation. There are definitely exceptions to that rule. So, um, I, you know, uh, a, an example that comes to mind would be, so a retailer like Pets at Home, for example, is definitely an exception to the rule um, that, that that you've just outlined. They've got a chief data officer. They've done, you know, made significant investments in systems and capability. And and the CEO talks about that, talks about data centricity and the value of that in results presentations and in, in shareholder meetings all the time. So, and they're not alone. There are there are you know other businesses you know plowing the same furrow. But I do think that there are too few businesses in the in the sectors that I look at, as I say, retail and hospitality in particular, too few businesses that that that, that really get it. Um, and I think there are too many who, to a certain extent, you can see even from the outside are doing things the way they always have. So when you see, um, you know, you hear of a, an example of, you know, a business having, you know, the wrong SKUs in the wrong stores at the wrong time, you know, the wrong sizes of clothing in the wrong place at the wrong time or missing out on a key consumer trend, for example, then then often that's a sign that you're looking at a business which is still doing things like buying and stock management the way they always have. And, and the way they always have, that means, yes, with data, with a big spreadsheet, but also with lots of institutional memory and instinct, but without necessarily really reaching in and unlocking the additional power that's hidden in their data. And, and that increasingly, I think, is the um, the territory that separates the kind of the, the really truly data centric businesses from those who are going to be left behind. It sounds like you might be talking about Marks and Spencer there. <laughs> well, I, 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 I name no names, of course, when we're talking <laughs> about retailers who do and don't get it. But 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 certainly, I think that there there are you know that there, there are examples of businesses out there, and I used the story, uh, the anecdote at the beginning of this conversation that. You know, have made very. You know, it'd be hard to point to a retail or consumer business that ha- that wouldn't say, "Hang on a minute, we've made lots of investments. We've built databases. We've done that single view of the customer project. We've, you know, partnered with a technology company to do some neural network AI stuff." Everybody's got that story, um, but the question is, and I think the thing that really separates those businesses that are truly data centric from those that aren't is identifying those businesses where that change, where that activity has really changed the way the business does business and isn't just a kind of, um, you know, frippery around the edges. So Ian, this has been an absolutely fascinating chat about data and what companies can do to get ahead. So if any listener wants to get hold of Ian's book, we've got an offer where you can get 30% off. So 
go to the Harriman House website and look for The Average is Always Wrong by Ian Shepherd. And you can type in the code SHARES30, so that's SHARES uppercase, um, three zero, and you'll get 30% off Ian Shepherd's book, The Average is Always Wrong. So thanks ever so much, Ian, for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So thanks a lot for tuning into this week's episode. Um, we also want to say thanks ever so much for our in, you know, sort of increasingly um, large listenership. So we've, we've just had 500,000 downloads of the podcast since we launched just under two years ago. Which is, yeah, so it's fantastic. So thanks ever so much. Fireworks are going off in the studio as we speak. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we're very grateful for everyone for listening. And um, please do tell your friends and family about it. If you know, we, we, we tried, we aim to sort of help people and yeah. just inform them about what's going on. So, um, you know, leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It'd be greatly appreciated. So thanks very much. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.